Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we chatted about the hollowness of social media, the emptiness of stadiums without crowds, and donuts. All this plus the latest from Eureka Cast Now, the Biden Files, and much, much more. It's the Lumpen Week in Review for June 18th, 2021. The boys from I-94 chatted with Sam Riviere about social media, Russian novels, and the commodification of literature on the latest edition of Lumpen's Books and Literature show. Riviere, the author of the new novel Dead Souls, joined us from Edinburgh to discuss his work, The Goofy World of Poetry, and how art has become a profession. I-94 airs every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. Hey, today we are joined live from Edinburgh by the author Sam Riviera. He has a new book out called Dead Souls. If you're in the U.K., it's on W&N, which is an imprint of Hachette. Here it's on Catapult, which is a good uh, little indie book label that if you don't know, you should be familiar with. They also publish Soft Skull. Sam, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. It's really nice to be here. It's great to have you on. Uh, Dead Souls is a... um, is, is it fair for me to call it kind of an experimental book? I mean, it is written as a single paragraph, and I, I, I hesitate to say that because I don't want to have listeners immediately turn the radio off. You know, they yeah. hear experimental, <laughs> and they're like, oh, I'm going to cash out for 69 it's, minutes. It's readably experimental. It's very yeah. readable experimental. But, but is it fair to just start off by saying that? Uh, yeah, definitely. I think I was trying to be less experimental than my tendency normally is so uh, the single paragraph seemed a nice way to sort of confine myself as well okay but um yeah to me it seems like as as good a shot as i had of doing a fairly conventional novel because you started out and, and gained notoriety first of all as a poet yeah that's right so and and the book um we're going to get into your book for a second the book is about uh you know, a weird way a kind of alternate world of south bank london uh, which is a major cultural center in England, uh, but it's uh, a world where uh, drones uh, circulate and you pay for things with your thumbprint, and uh, there are these massive festivals of culture, and the uh, narrator of, of Sam's book uh, is talking to all these people, particularly about a poet that has been accused of plagiarism not once but twice. Before we get into that, I do want to back up a little bit because I think people who um, are well-read probably know there is another book called Dead Souls, and it's by mm-hmm. Nikolai Gogol. And uh, I wanted to start there because I, I I have to think that you, in some ways, based some of what you were doing on Gogol's book. Now, for people that don't know about Gogol's book, it is a classic of Russian literature. Uh, Gogol himself really intended it to be kind of a modern-day divine comedy. It was a prose poem. But it was a satire. It was about a guy named Pavel Chichikov who meets a group of people, and his goal is to basically buy their land by buying their souls. And in Russia, before the emancipation of the serfs, which came around 1860, um, serfs were actually owned by the lieges of the land. And if you died, your soul still counted. So, for example, if a landowner had six serfs living on his land and two of them died, he still had six. Those dead souls counted. Right. And that's, that's how they referred to all their... Surf, Correct. Souls, right? As yeah. souls. And, and that was actually a counting measure in Russia. It didn't necessarily have the same uh, connotation as when we use it. But Chichikov in the book, and this is a satire by Gogol, he's going around trying to collect these dead souls and then he's going to sell them because he thinks that's going to make him rich. And the book is a long conversation and he meets people during the book. Uh, and they are archetypes of what Gogol is trying to satirize. And again, I'm, I'm, this is so dimly remembered. I was in yeah. university 30 years ago. But well, I remember <laughs> I, when I read it, I thought it was like dead souls, like the metaphysical 
yeah then, like the joy division song and i read it, i'm like wait a minute yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so i wanted to start there because you know sam obviously it's a classic it, your book is going to be compared to it though i think it probably has more to do with thomas bernard and we'll get to that in a little bit but can you talk about the influence mm. of, of gogol on your work because i mean obviously that is a classic of russian literature and a classic of world literature yeah yeah um yeah it felt like a. uh a kind of um, irreverent move to name a book after something as totemic as Dead Souls, and yeah, you're what you've. I've, it sounds like you've read it a lot more recently <laughs> than thirty years. Ago. <laughs> um, but yeah, that that the the. I think when I read it, I I had the makings of uh, of a story in my head, and it was a very slow um, gestation period for writing this novel. And I think when I read Dead Souls, um, and I read it for the first time maybe five years ago or something, something like that, but the basic plot outline struck me as being like uh, having a, an interesting tension with and sort of that it could be mapped quite interestingly onto a contemporary situation, whereby the, the, something would take the place of the dead serfs, the souls that Chichikov purchases so that he can ascend the ranks of landowners, right? Um, so instead it would become... Um, poems, poets, social media followers, you know, there seem to be all sorts of um, things in the, like the tokens of success for like the modern writer, which uh, you have to accrue in order to like become um, visible and known. And it just seemed like a nice, a sort of neat allegorical pattern to, to map onto the, the kind of story I had in mind, which was, to, which was always gonna be about plagiarist. Um, so I just really liked the the, the logic of um, Dead Souls as a story, um, and this idea really of like a sort of quest novel of like a, a character who goes and meets different people and runs into different situations, and he tries to get things out of these people. It didn't. I envisage it in the beginning as being like a much more directly, closely following the plot of the Russian novel, but in the end, it tended it, it became much looser than that. But the basic plot outline is there. I think it's still legible in in, in my um, in my version. Yeah, and I, I would agree with that. And I think before I hand it off to one of my colleagues, I, you know, one of the things that was interesting about your book and of course Gogol's book is it is essentially talking about uh, the monetization of things that really shouldn't necessarily be monetized, and yeah. and that is I think one of the things that is a thread throughout your book. You're you're talking in kind of a and maybe, I don't know if you guys agree with me, but I felt it was kind of a barely controlled rage at, uh, <laughs> you know, the idea that um, people's words could be turned into a commodity and social media followers, which are frankly BS. I can't say what I would say on American radio, but, you know, some things that we have given uh, currency to really don't actually matter. And I, that was something that Gogol was talking about. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think that is what you were getting at as well. Um, yeah, I think I'm, I'm less interested on in having a position about it necessarily as other or more just observing that this is the case, that it might, it might be that there's something insubstantial seeming, there certainly is something insubstantial seeming about having hundreds of thousands of social media followers, but nonetheless, there are material results that can happen if you do, you know. That um, for some, if you're, you know, an artist or something, that can make you a that can be the difference between being a successful artist or not. So I, I agree that there is um, something insubstantial and certainly suspicious, and I think it's right that we're skeptical about the meaning of this. 
but at the same time i'd like to i also wanted to acknowledge that there is a material um consequence to these things in the same way that chichikov's dead souls were people who didn't exist anymore there were names on a document right but nonetheless in terms of what he could use them for they had real material um value and i suppose i'm interested in that contradiction that there are things that can seemingly be valueless or insubstantial ghostly indicators of value but yet in certain contexts they become real and they lead to real changes in fortune or real um ascents in terms of climbing the cultural ladder if you want to call it something like that I had been invited to the 26th Festival of Culture to fulfill a number of duties, and the most pressing now lay ahead of me, the recital of some poems in translation by the Ukrainian poet, essayist, and broadcaster Zuriya Zadan before an audience of several hundred at the King George Hall. Zuriya Zadan had been booked to recite her poems in the original Ukrainian, and her animated performance style was to provide the conclusion to the evening, which featured a number of other controversial or politically sensitive writers paired with authors and editors who had either translated their works or published them in English, which is what I had done, selecting five of Zuria Zadan's poems for appearance in the spring issue of Casement. The event had been thrown into disarray by news I had received earlier in the afternoon from the organizers via email that Zuria Zadan would be unable to attend as she had been detained by authorities at Heathrow early that morning for reasons that couldn't be specified, word of which had only just reached them. So I would be reciting the poems of the outspoken Ukrainian poet alone on stage at King George Hall, where I would be expected in some way to embody the work's political efficacy in front of an audience of close to a thousand spectators who were eager to soak up statements of political dissent, particularly when targeted at a regime that is portrayed across our media as violently repressive and dangerously corrupt, in this case that of the Russian government. What purpose did it serve, I wondered as I passed a food stand selling savory Brazilian pastries to read out these works. Undoubtedly deeply felt, terrifying and hilarious works of poetry, first in translation, so lacking the reference points and natural medium of their own language, and second for the applause of a comfortable audience on a clement early autumn weeknight in the center of London. A trip out to a thoroughly respectable cultural event and a glass of wine afterwards wasn't this kind of thing simply assisting our own complacency and impotence, I thought as I shouldered through a group of teenagers carrying skateboards on the South Bank dramatizing in the guise of a worthy literary event, a power struggle from the seemingly distant arena of post-Soviet politics, and basically celebrating our distance from it, thereby completely ignoring our own situation. Might the spectacle just as well be completely made up, set on Mars, for example, featuring a race of reptilian humanoids for all the impact it would have? Hadn't the poetry of Zabria Zadan been converted in these palatial buildings with their lighting rigs and sound systems and multi-level restaurant and bar facilities seamlessly into inoffensive or even officially mandated entertainment? I didn't know and I didn't really care. I recognized these thoughts as displaced anxiety about the performance, but it was true that I had considered them earlier in the day too, running over several possible critiques that could be mounted of the event, a habit I'd formed years ago, like many in the literary sector, of having to imaginatively justify my activities to a zealous and politically astute cabinet of observers.
Chuck Mertz chatted with literary theorist Hans Ulrich Gumbrecht about his book Crowds, The Stadium as a Ritual of Intensity. Just in time for the European Championships, Gumbrecht discussed the communal nature of sports, why soccer without crowds feels sterile, and Germany's chances at the Euros. Spoiler, they are not good. This is Hell airs every Thursday and Sunday at 10 a.m. What is it that you enjoy about being in a crowd at a soccer match? Yeah, I mean, if we're talking soccer, if we're not talking American professional sports, uh, I like to be in the cheap seats. I mean, my favorite team in the in European soccer, my, my, my favorite team in the U.S. is Stanford football, period. But my favorite team in European soccer is the team that always ends up second in the German league, Borussia Dortmund. And they have the largest uh, stadium in continental Europe, has a capacity of 85,000. But what makes it unique is which is not typical for our time, for our present, they have a standing only part that is 30,000 people. And they keep the tickets very cheap so that, I mean, Dortmund is a former, I mean, second industrial revolution town, coal, steel mining that doesn't exist anymore. Today it's a town of many unemployed people, but they go there and uh, they are tough. And I think one of the reasons why the stadium is always selling out is not so much the team. The team is okay. The team is good. But... Uh, it is this presence in the stadium. It is these 30,000 people uh, who are standing there, who are singing, who are very, very intense. And although, I mean, I'm 73 years old and, and maybe I could even afford a better ticket, but when I'm there, I like to be in that part of the stadium. I like to be among those people who are rough, those people who are um, a risk of violence in the stadium. That's not pretty, but but... Yes, uh, this is what attracts me. I mean, and then, you know, I wrote a whole book about it. I could tell you further why I think this is exciting. But there is this goose flesh feeling when I'm in the crowd. Sometimes even, not sometimes even, but, but it's guaranteed, even when the game is boring. So do crowds affect us then in a unique way? And, because, uh, do, well, they, do they change us in ways no other sociability, as you call it, changes us? Yeah, definitely. I mean, and it's um, in, as an intellectual problem, even an academic problem. Uh, of course, we're talking about a sociability that includes the body. And there's a problem, I think, uh, with the humanities, where I'm coming from, or with sociology. Whenever we talk about sociability, whenever we talk about society, we talk about things like shared interests, that would be Marx, you know, shared conditions of production, uh, solidarity. These are all important and good things. But it, in a way, excludes the body. So there is a sociability, we all know that intuitively, uh, that includes the body. We all know, for example, if you're in the teaching profession, that sitting around a seminar table or being with kids in a classroom is different from, from teaching through the screen, you know, I mean, Zoom or, or whatever remote uh, technology we have. So... There is something to this present that we can achieve, that we can feel. We all know it intuitively, 
but uh, it is difficult to describe what exactly happens, what exactly produces, for example, in a stadium, in a stadium with such crowds, this goose flash feeling, also this temptation of violence, I can feel that. Uh, it doesn't always have to happen, and thank goodness it doesn't always happen, but, but there is such a feeling. But also, what produces the possibility that a seminar in real presence, seminar of people, you know, graduate seminar, 10, 15 people sitting around a table, is intellectually more productive than a seminar on screen. So you also mentioned that whenever I talk to European friends about the world of team sports in the United States, I feel the lack of a concept that would be the equivalent of the American franchise. And you talk about the kind of identity that different mm -hmm. types of fans have uh, attached their mm -hmm. team. You mentioned that European fans still resist the idea of a majority owner, although it has long become the economic reality in most professional soccer leagues, whereas the German <laughs> Soccer Federation even formally excludes any individual participation over 50% of the operating yeah. capital. So are concepts like franchises and team owners necessary in that team identification as supporters? Why is it necessary to not think of your team as a franchise that is controlled by well, I mean, it's a very it's a very different story. I mean first of all one shouldn't idealize like American intellectuals normally do the reality, for example, of European soccer. They don't have an equivalent word in any European language, not even European English. Uh, I mean, British English for franchise. Uh, nevertheless, you know, they are owned by shakes. They are owned by, by American owners. I mean, Manchester United, arguably the most popular soccer team in, in, in Europe, is owned by Glazer. That's a family who has uh, NFL ownership. So, I mean, it's not so ideal. Nevertheless, going back to America, I think uh, the identity, speaking the cultural profile, uh, of a European uh, soccer team, above all. I mean, that's the most popular sport, except rugby in France, is much closer to the identity profile of a college team. I mean, college teams also have huge financial implications. But uh, you could not imagine Michigan moving to a different university. I mean, Michigan has to be, you know, in, the, in, the, in that big stadium that they have in Ann Arbor on college, or, I mean, less popular, but as important for me, Stanford has to be on Stanford campus, has to be in Palo Alto, has to be playing against the arch-rival Berkeley, arch-rival UCLA. That cannot move. Uh, the identification um, always has something to do with your life story. I mean, I mean I'm a Stanford fan because late in life, I became Stanford faculty, and, and I got to know American football, and that is very, very important to me. Um, you know, if you are, for example, I'm a, uh, I'm a fan of this uh, team in, in the German soccer league in Dortmund because my mother was from that town, and my grandfather in 1956 took me to a game in what was the predecessor of the present-day Champions League. So, Whereas I think um, if you have NFL season tickets or NBA season tickets, uh, baseball may be slightly different. You do that because you like the sport and there is a local team and you like the local team to win the championship. But I think the type of investment emotionally, passionately is very, very different. So can, can teams be successful on identity alone? How important is the crowd's identity to the team's success? Because you always hear that the most important thing is winning. Is winning the most important thing, or is it team identity? Well, I mean, I do think uh, if I go to a stadium, uh, 
it is important, or let me put it this way. I mean, if you go to a stadium and, and only want to observe, only want to study, uh, you don't have a preference, even if the two teams, you know, for, I mean, you're completely neutral. I mean, I don't know. I mean, if the Miami Dolphins uh, are playing, let's say, uh, uh, Las Vegas, now in NFL, I, I, I don't really care. I have no local investment. I don't have the investment that I have in college. Or let's say if I see any team in college football play against Berkeley, I want Berkeley to lose because of the Stanford-Berkeley rivalry. So I think, I mean, you have more fun. Uh, you get more drawn into the event uh, if you want to... Uh, if you want one team to win, I think this demonizing winning is 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 inadequate. I mean, nobody really. I mean, yes, there are these all these Olympic discourses. You know that this is not about winning, but I do think that you, you have fun if if you want to win. And also, being an athlete, I never was a good athlete. But if you don't want to win, uh, you don't get the kind of intensity uh, that you really want to get. So I mean, I don't. I think identity. Uh, and even strengthening identity and building identity is certainly something that comes as, as an important and, and sometimes beautiful, sometimes not so beautiful side effect uh, of watching sports, of being in sports. But I do think that if you don't want to win, if you don't want one of the teams, your team, to win, you will never get into, and I'm a little bit pushing this word, intensity, which, which I think is an important, the important component of being in the stadium. And I want to get to that in just a moment, but uh, you also write that Bo Russia, like um, uh, Manchester United in the English League, traces back its origins to the yeah. Catholic workers' movement and also emphasizes the social affinity to the more famous FC Liverpool in England, whereas Schalke, as the uh, cross-city rival of Bo Russia, uh, has maintained during their time of greatest uh, athletic glory a distance from the National Socialist government in Germany. So outside of the stadium, how much of an impact do team identities have on local or national identities? Do team identities permeate our identity outside of stadiums? Yes, definitely. I do think, you know, that, that I mean, to use that example again, which is my central example, uh, in that book, which first came out in German, so what uh, the, the edition you're referring now is an English translation. I had to write a preface because I was so locally focused on this Borussia Dortmund example, which is one of the most popular franchises, I think, internationally, in soccer and happens to be, uh, quote, unquote, my team. Uh, first of all, as we were already saying, the idea that such a team could ever move from one city to the other uh, is completely unthinkable. Second, I mean, that team, like Manchester United, and there's an affinity, comes out of the Catholic working movement. And until the present day, I'm not saying that they are left wing or anything like that, uh, but uh, until the present day, they have this standing-only crowd, and you can get a ticket for a first league game for 12 euro. That is still a lot of money for some of those people who go, but they can go to every home game. They can go to every home game, and there is a flavor to that uh, that is particular. I mean, to give you another example, I mean, if you're a Dortmund fan in the German league, you cannot be a fan of Bayern Munich uh, because Bayern Munich is the team that wins nine out of ten times, quite literally, the German championship, which is pretty boring. That team, actually, was the team of the Jewish bourgeoisie uh, in Munich. And what this does, I mean, I have to say that, okay, so I have a certain, as an ex-German intellectual, sympathy for them, which I wouldn't admit in a soccer environment, but I do have. But that means that this team 
Uh, and it's sad. Despite having been by far the most successful sports franchise in Germany in the last 50 years, is not locally popular. Now, until the present day, and although people do not really know, but having emerged historically out of the Jewish bourgeoisie, uh, you cannot be locally popular. And that is quite interesting, because if you ask people, everybody in Munich knows that in spite of the success, this team is not very popular. And if you ask people why, they wouldn't know. But I do think it has to do with the fact uh, that uh, they are not local. I mean, that they come out of the periphery, social periphery. To give you the sad counterexample, the more popular team in soccer, Munich, continues to be 1860 Munich, which sadly was the favorite team of the Nazis. I'm not saying that Munich until the present day is Nazi, but I mean, I want to say that there is a historical depth to these identities you can identify with or not uh, that is unchangeable, that is different from the historical depth or not of those franchises that can move. I mean, they sometimes move in the NFL, in the NBA, etc., etc. I mean, and there's more or less, I think, would say the Los Angeles Lakers today have a certain local flavor uh, the New England Patriots have a certain flavor. But, uh, but the sheer fact that those teams can consider every year whether they want to move or not uh, is quite symptomatic. This week on The Biden Files, Trump's DOJ tried to seize phone records from congressmen and their kids. Trump weaponized the Justice Department against his enemies and tried to overturn the election. 600,000 citizens are dead from COVID in the U.S. Congress makes Juneteenth the 12th federal holiday. Biden and Putin meet in a tenth session, and the Supreme Court upholds Obamagare again. These are the Biden Files. Day 143, June 11th. The Interior Department's Inspector General concluded that Park Police did not clear a group of protesters, so Trump could walk to a nearby church for a photo op. Mark Greenblatt instead found that Park Police had the authority to clear the park so their contractor could install anti-scale fencing. They did not know that Trump would be making his walk until late afternoon. However, Attorney General William Barr did not mention a potential presidential visit to the park and then urged officials there to speed up the clearing process after Trump decided to walk through the area. The Park Service also admitted for the first time that they used tear gas on those peaceful protesters. Attorney General Merrick Garland warned Republicans that their attempts to pass restrictive voting laws would be scrutinized. He also said he would double the size of the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division staff to protect every American's right to vote. Garland said the DOJ will do everything in its power to prevent election fraud and if found to vigorously prosecute, but will also scrutinize new laws that seek to curb voter access. The Biden administration will repeal a rule allowing roads and development in more than half of Alaska's Tongass National Forest. The move revised protections originally put in place in 2001 by Bill Clinton. Trump stripped them three months before leaving office. Day 144, June 12th. The Trump administration reportedly weaponized the Justice Department and seized records from Apple requesting phone metadata from Democratic House Intelligence Committee members, their aides, and their children. One was a minor. The startling move, nearly unheard of outside of RICO and corruption investigations, came as Trump railed at perceived leaks that had revealed close contacts between the Kremlin and his administration. His DOJ also forced Apple to be gagged about that, keeping them silent until recently. 
Later, Attorney General William Barr concealed those investigations and kept them alive over staff objections who had called them political. Senate Democratic leaders demanded that former Attorneys General Barr and Jeff Sessions now testify under oath about the secret subpoenas served on Representative Adam Schiff and Representative Eric Swalwell, calling it a gross abuse of power and an assault on the separation of powers. The senators threatened to subpoena Barr and Sessions if they will not appear voluntarily. The Biden administration, meanwhile, called the behavior of Trump's Attorneys General appalling. The Justice Department's Inspector General also has opened an investigation into the scandal. A bipartisan group of senators say they have reached an agreement on a framework to invest in the United States' aging public works system. The overall package would cost around $1.2 trillion over eight years, but is expected to address a narrower range of physical infrastructure projects and would avoid the Democratic push for tax increases. It would instead index the gas tax to inflation to pay for the plan. Doubtful that the Republicans will actually support any deal, Democrats continue to plan to use reconciliation to pass a far more sweeping infrastructure bill. Meanwhile, consumer prices rose at their fastest annual rate since 2008, leaping 5% in a jump that keeps the spotlight on inflation and the stuttering pandemic restart. Prices are rising for a variety of goods and services from lumber to airfare, with rental cars and used car sales seeing massive leaps close to 30%. The situation is a result of supply bottlenecks and strong consumer demand. And the leaders of the free world met in Cornwall, England this weekend with the U.S. and the U.K. seizing their chance to assure rattled partners in NATO that the Trump era is over. President Biden and Prime Minister Boris Johnson of Britain jointly signed a new version of the 80-year-old Atlantic Charter that both help will make clear that America first is consigned to the dustbin of history. Both men also played up a massive world vaccination donation, which will see the United States reclaiming a role it has sought to play since the end of World War II. Day 145, June 13th. The developing scandal enveloping the Trump-era Justice Department took another turn when it was revealed that the DOJ subpoenaed Apple about an account that belonged to Trump's own White House counsel. The DOJ also subpoenaed Apple for metadata and phone records from journalists, House Democrats, and their children. Attorney General Merrick Garland said he has now opened an investigation into what he called a gross abuse of power and an assault on the separation of powers. Israel has ended the long and divisive reign of Benjamin Netanyahu as the country's parliament gave its vote of confidence to a coalition government. The Knesset approved the new government by just a single vote, 60 to 59. Naftali Bennett, a hard-right figure who may prove as divisive as Bibi, took office. Yar Lapid will replace him after two years, assuming the government can last that long under a new power-sharing deal. Netanyahu was the longest-serving leader in Israel's history. He now faces serious charges of corruption and malfeasance. Bibi had employed Trumpian tactics claiming fraud to avoid what could prove to be ruinous prison terms. The United States passed a grim milestone this weekend with 600,000 dead from COVID, by far the worst in the world. The U.S. COVID death toll is more than 200 times higher than the number of lives lost on September 11th and higher than the number of American soldiers killed in combat during Vietnam, World War I, and World War II combined. However, deaths have fallen dramatically. More than half of the U.S. population has received at least one shot of a vaccine, and 43% of the population is now fully vaccinated. Case numbers in the U.S. have fallen to their lowest point since testing became widely available. Fewer deaths are being reported each day than at any point since a pandemic was declared. However, the pace of vaccination has slowed considerably in recent weeks, where rates are especially low in the American South. There is growing concern that new waves fed by the Delta variant may impact that region. Day 146, June 14th. 
A growing scandal involving the Trump-era DOJ has already claimed one scalp as the Department of Justice's national security official in charge of investigating leaks, John Demers, suddenly resigned. Merrick Garland also said the DOJ will now tighten its rules around seizing information about members of Congress and their aides and vowed strict accountability for officials who let politics affect their work. Garland also has scheduled meetings with executives from CNN, The New York Times, and The Washington Post to discuss the Trump administration's leak investigation that involves seeking reporter records from all three media outlets. Former Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein also said he was not aware of a subpoena that targeted Democratic members of Congress. At the time of the subpoena, Jeff Sessions was recused from the Russian probe, meaning the leak investigation would have fallen under Rosenstein. Jeff Sessions has also reportedly told people he did not approve such a subpoena. U.S. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said he would move to block President Joe Biden from filling a Supreme Court nominee in 2024 if Republicans regain control of the chamber and a vacancy arises during that election year. McConnell also said he would try to torpedo any nomination Biden made, regardless of the year. And President Biden reaffirmed NATO's Article 5, which is the central tenet of collective defense, calling it a sacred obligation. NATO leaders also accused the Chinese of working to undermine global order with systemic challenges to a rules-based international order. Separately said, the U.S. would respond in kind if Vladimir Putin chooses not to cooperate on cybersecurity. Day 147, June 15th. The FBI has warned that followers of the QAnon conspiracy theory could engage in violence against political opponents out of frustration that the theory's predictions have not come true. The FBI said its experts believe that some QAnon followers believe they can no longer trust the plan. QAnon has included wild predictions of disclosures about child trafficking rings involving Democrats, Hillary Clinton's arrest, and the restoration of Trump to the White House. Trump himself is said to believe he somehow will be restored to the White House in August. The FBI attributes at least some of the falloff in support for QAnon to the non-occurrence of events, such as Trump's restoration, and also to large-scale deplatforming of QAnon materials by powerful social media companies. A federal judge has blocked the Biden administration's temporary suspension of new oil and gas drilling leases on public lands. Judge Terry Doughty said the power to pause the offshore drilling lies solely with Congress. The Interior Department said it would comply with the decision, suggesting that lease sales to drill in Alaska and the Gulf of Mexico will likely resume for now. The Interior Department, however, is expected to challenge the decision as well. And the Senate confirmed Judge Kentanji Brown-Jackson to D.C.'s Circuit Court of Appeals, 53 to 44. Jackson becomes the first black woman confirmed to an appellate court in a decade. She's one of five black female circuit court judges currently serving in the United States. She fills the vacancy left by Attorney General Merrick Garland. She is considered a possible Supreme Court justice candidate. Day 148, June 16th. In Trump's final weeks in office, Trump repeatedly pressured the Justice Department to take up his false claims of election fraud. Trump's attempts met with silence from then-Attorney General William Barr. Trump then attempted to force his replacement, Jeffrey Rosen, to file a lawsuit to the Supreme Court containing claims that had already been rejected. New emails show that the Department of Justice actively avoided multiple Trump surrogates, with Rudy Giuliani named in particular as making brazen attempts to force review of particularly wild conspiracy claims, including one that says citizens in Italy had used satellites to change votes from Trump to Biden in Dominion voting machines. President Biden and President Vladimir Putin of Russia emerged from a tense in-person summit saying the right things, but it remained obvious the two superpowers face intractable issues. 
Putin denied that Russia played a role in a spate of bold cyber attacks against American institutions, falsely claiming that the U.S. engaged in cyber warfare against its own businesses. Putin, however, did seem chastened after the meeting. Biden is said to have threatened broad-based retaliation to him. Biden said briefly and simply after the meeting, I did what I came to do. New York and California became the two latest states to lift all restrictions in another sign the pandemic is abating in America. New York made the move after hitting the 70% vaccination mark. California marked its moment with state-subsidized vacation giveaways and $50 million in vaccine lottery prizes as they attempt to hit a similar number. Vaccination rates remain stubborn in the South. The NIH also announced the virus was in the United States far earlier than known. It was first detected in lab tests in the state of Illinois as early as Christmas 2019. The U.S. Education Department said that Title IX projects transgender students. The landmark move, which followed a Supreme Court decision that found the Civil Rights Act extended to gay and transgender people, will now apply to a 1972 law that prohibits sex-based discrimination in federally funded schools. Education Secretary Miguel Cardona said students cannot be discriminated against because of their sexual orientation or their gender identity. Title IX has become a flashpoint for the far right in America with spurious claims involving transgender athletes in sports. Day 149, June 17th. The Supreme Court rejected another challenge to the Affordable Care Act, the third time it has preserved the 2010 health care law. Texas and several other Republican states backed by the Trump administration had sought to strike down the law on technical arguments after Congress reduced to zero the tax penalty for failing to carry health insurance. The Supreme Court ruled 7-2 that none of the plaintiffs suffered any injury at all from zeroing out the penalty and thus lacked legal standings to bring the lawsuit. The Justice Department has also closed its criminal investigation into whether a memoir by Trump's National Security Advisor John Bolton illegally disclosed classified information. It also dropped its lawsuit aimed at recouping profits. By ending the legal action, the Department of Justice tacitly acknowledged that Trump and his White House officials acted illegitimately. They had attempted to stall publication of the book until after the election. Congress has voted to make Juneteenth, or June 19th, a federal holiday that commemorates the end of slavery in the United States. The move will make June 19th the 12th federal holiday. President Joe Biden has said he will sign it. Juneteenth commemorates when the last enslaved African Americans learned they were free men. The Justice Department also reversed a Trump-era immigration ruling that limited the possibility of asylum protections in the U.S. for women fleeing domestic violence in other countries. Attorney General Merrick Garland vacated a 2018 decision by former Attorney General Jeff Sessions that had ordered immigration judges to stop granting asylum to victims of what he called private violence. The FBI told the House Oversight Committee it is pursuing, quote, hundreds of investigations related to the Capitol riot. 21 House Republicans voted against awarding the Congressional Gold Medal to the police officers who responded to the attack on the Capitol by a pro-Trump mob. And the United States has lost more than $400 billion to fraudulent employment claims over the past year. Foreign crime syndicates in China, Nigeria, and Russia extracted the money, as much as 50% of all pandemic unemployment claims. These are the Biden Files.
The crew from Bad at Sports chatted with longtime collaborators Tom Burtonwood and Holly Holmes. They discussed their work produced during the pandemic time, displaying art in their front yard, and demonstrated their ability to make funny voices. Bad at Sports airs Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Hello. Tom, how is it going? Oh, it's going just fine, thank you. How are you? Tom. He got very slow. Tom got, yeah, little Tom. (laughs) (laughs) The pandemic treated him well. Yes, you know, I've shed a few pounds. It's been very good. <laughs> Tom and Holly, uh, you guys have been uh, fixtures of the Chicago art world for uh, probably the last 18, 19 years as Burton Woods and Homes, although you uh, work separately now and do your own things and have been real kind of um, stalwarts in uh, in preserving the le- legacy of Sabina Ott as she passed away a few years ago. Uh, and y- you guys were a guiding light in the uh, the effort to keep the terrain biennial going after she passed. Uh, we're we're a few months out from uh, terrain biennial happening, and I think uh, applications to be part of the terrain biennial are probably due at the end of the month. Is that does that sound true? That sounds very true. Uh, yes, the terrain biennial. Uh, applications are online to be a host and to be artists and they're due in about two weeks and yeah we're really excited we've got numerous people have already applied but we're looking for some more for sure I have two applications I haven't put in for for our yard and and an institution I'm associated with disclaimer I work for a place called Columbia College Chicago which Sabina Ott also used to work for and disclaimer Cool. Yeah, we look forward to uh, to getting your uh, um, getting your applications in. Yeah, the the application deadline is June thirtieth, and folks can apply online. And by apply, you know that's a very loose term. I mean, terrain is an open call, and we generally, you know, we're screening mostly for sort of projects that uh, might be say unsafe. You know, more than anything, really. So like, it's we tend to. You know, application is sort of super loose. So if people want to take part, um, submit uh, using the form. Uh, we're looking for hosts. So hosts are people who have uh, spaces that artists can use to produce exhibition, to produce installations, sculpture, projects, whatever. Uh, we're looking for artists to um, make projects, to install in sites that hosts have provided. And we're looking for curators, people who want to curate their block, organize their neighbors, uh, create their own terrain autonomous zone, um, and you know, create the kind of cluster sites that have made the biennial so special. So, you know, I know we have a sort of focus in Oak Park, uh, but we often have many different clusters around different neighborhoods in Chicago, and then we have clusters all over the country. You know, we have a big, solid presence in Iowa City. Uh, big Springfield, Illinois connection, lots of folks on the West Coast. And uh, yeah, it's it's all over the place. And I know we've had folks reaching out from uh, Germany, from Munich, and uh, we got a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, yeah. no, I was just going to say that we have a bunch of people coming, uh, applying from Brooklyn, and they have, they've been posting on Instagram as well. Enthusiasts from Brooklyn. Yes. Welcome to the party, Brooklyn. Finally, you're catching up. Yes, it's very exciting. Well, and so 
when we talk about the terrain biennial, the terrain biennial is this weird dislocated notion that we could use our yards, our kind of window spaces in our apartment buildings, all of these kind of uh, kind of presentation spaces for our lives. Although we don't live most of them in those presentation spaces, they just sort of frontage our lives as a space for others to encounter art, right? That they're not, that it sort of inverts the traditional relationship of art where like you experience art in people's homes on their walls as part of their lives. And this is actually shoving that art back out into the world. That's correct, Duncan. So we want people to be able to walk down the street, (laughs) walk down the street and see and stumble across artwork that's in your windows or in your front yard or in your porch. And it's all that surprise and that's part of the magic of the terrain biennial and having, yeah, just the the whole surprise and knowing what's, and knowing. And then sometimes people are like, is that a terrain? Like even today we, we go on walks and we're like, oh, is that an old terrain piece? We don't know. Right, or maybe it's a terrain piece that's already been installed, like early, and they're just getting, you know, getting ready. And they're um, going to get credit for it after the fact. Oh, 100%, 100%. And I mean, Sabina would talk about the passerby and the importance of the passerby. Um, you know, when Sabina ran terrain from her home in Oak Park, I mean, sh- it was just across the street from uh, the elementary school. And so there were parents and kids who would come past and see all the different art installations and talk to the artists and have this kind of dialogue. And I, I mean, that was super important. And so this idea of people stumbling across things, being, having these interventions into their normal everyday spaces was kind of super important to Sabina and super important therefore to Terrain. So outside of uh, new venues that are popping up, I, by the way, I would like to state, I brought New York City into uh, into this mix uh, two yeah. years ago. Thank yes. you. In New York, yes. Texas. Yes. Oh, um, yes. The New York, Texas. Thing. Yes. Brilliant show. Brilliant Thank piece. you. Thank Love you. Love that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, I'm curious. Uh, so previously there were like there was a bus tour. Uh, there were there there've been uh, maps published. Like, what are some of the thoughts as you're ramping up for this year's? Like, are there new things that are going to be happening, or are we bringing out some old things that had, uh, you know dissipated over the last few years like is what's what's going to specifically be happening with this iteration well we're definitely going to have maps that's for sure we are pondering the idea of doing bike tours because the legend is that sabina came up with the whole idea of terrain when she was on a bike trip at acre with alex alex tam and so and it's a 10 years of terrain biennial. So Alex, if you're listening, the legend is that it all happened on that bike trip, yo. So what were the what are those uh, those Chicago bike? I know they're not just in Chicago, but they're those drinking bikes, you know, where there's like ten people pedaling and there's somebody like leading the tour. It feels like that's the thing, because drinking in Chicago, you know, that's synonymous, right? That that's built in. Built in. I feel like those are more popular in places like Nashville. Like it's uh, because it, you need to have open container laws that are more favorable. Although we seem to have become through the pandemic, this city has become more favorable to open container laws. 
Kerosene Stars will drop a new single on July 2nd, but we have it first. Here, in a world radio premiere, is the Chicago Quartet's Where Have You Been? Where, oh where have you been? I've taken all my medicine, driven all the roads I've seen. And now, looking at my past, thinking of the ones I've known. Where did all my time erode? Download complete. Now playing, Eureka Cast Now. Inspire curiosity. Imagine science. The point is, is this is this is industry news for those in the wellness spheres, but I think it has wider implications. Okay. And that is, of course... I'll be the judge of that. That distance reiki has officially been recognized by the Guild of Energy Workers, which is opening a new paradigm in energy healing. Um, 
an exciting new rule ruling uh-huh. from the high cabal the, of the Guild of Energy Workers. The Guild of Energy Workers. Yes. The regulatory body of energy workers, of energy healers. There's a regulatory body. A very strict regulatory body, and they have voted four to three to officially recognize remote Reiki as a legitimate form Wait, of energy healing. The there are only seven people in this regulatory body. Well, that's the high cabal. Wh- what does that mean? That is the highest ruling body within the guild. Sure. We don't need to discuss the structure of the guild. It's yeah, not, I can look that up on my own. Time. Absolutely, absolutely. But so it's a little bit of background to this. Um, with the pandemic, many individuals who are undergoing these sort of um, very highly affectatious, I might say, energy treatments okay. had to resort to having their practitioners do their energy work through applications like um, Zoom and Skype remotely. Remotely, uh, Ronde. I, I don't know a, about that. I think that I, a lot of people are using Ronde. It was met brothers service. I, I, you know, I think most people that are on a high enough vibration, a high enough frequency to be seeking out these services would understand that the Guy Five Network is, you know, um, anathema is anathema to. But that's besides the point. It was met with a lot of skepticism. This Mm -hmm. this remote work, Um, but and some of the individuals in the field went. So far as to call those who are doing this remote work um, fraudsters, hucksters, individuals mm-hmm. who are not taking the science seriously. But, the science of Reiki. Uh, of, of energy healing. Um, it's also orgone, chi, life energy. It's, it, there's many interpretations of all of it. I don't this know what o- any of those mean. This opens the floodgate to allow the use of healing energy mm-hmm. over great distances. It's going to help a lot of people, Kai, and I'm for one I'm very, very excited about it. So what so what is my question is what is distance rate how does that work well with a normal energy treatment you would be close to the individual they would lay on their back mm-hmm. or on their front oftentimes they'll be naked and you will you will oil your hands to uh-huh. sort of allow the conductivity to be the spiritual conductivity to be at its highest and you, and you and you by by Sensing and moving the natural life energy flows in a prone body, you can with your hands with your hands and oftentimes, but other other appendages can be used. Some oh. of some of the energy healing masters, some of the grandmasters, can do this entirely Grand just masters. through 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 eyesight. The point. The point is, is that energy is recirculated. Stagnant energy is released. Um, high pressure right. points are are taken to low pressure areas, it's and like treatment weather. is enabled. Treatment is, and, and so so what you're saying is that this guild has finally come down and said that by moving your hands around to sort of move the spiritual energy inside your body around, this is something that can work. As well, at a at an impossibly far distance, they, as it would work if you were right next to the person. Yes. Eureka Cast Now broadcasting Saturdays eight to nine p.m. on Lumpen Radio. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker. Voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt. Additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Schellist, and Annie Klein. 
Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.